my message tonight, and I want to tell you, I wish I didn't have to deal with things like this, but the hour demands it. I, I was telling Brother Sophie, I wish I could stay on Sunday's messages, dealing with Christ as the rock, our salvation, obedience to him. That's where I'm familiar. That's where I'm comfortable. That's where I like to stay. But you know, when we deal with something like we're dealing with last week and going to deal with next week and we're dealing with tonight, you know, this world of ours has such things going on that if you don't understand what's happening, you will become a victim of all the opinions of society around you. And you know what? This hour, history means nothing. Truth means nothing. Reality means nothing. So I want to caution you to be very careful. And all I'm doing is giving you a few jigsaw pieces for you to rightly interpret all of world events, I believe. My message tonight, Hitler, Islam, and anti-Semitism. I told you last week I was going to give you a shocking title tonight. And this is a shocking title. Next week, I'm going to go inside the church and deal with replacement theology, which has become widespread across the church and is growing. But here tonight, I want us to look back just a little bit in history to understand what's happening today. Hitler, Islam, and anti-Semitism. You read with me, follow with me in Esther chapter 3 and verse 1. After these things, King Azasaurus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Gagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened unto them, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman said unto Mordecai, sorry, and when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Azazarus even the people of Mordecai. Let's pray together here tonight. Father, we thank you, God, in an hour of hatred, of anger, of cursing, of bitterness, of jealousy, of unforgiveness. Lord God, that we have, we have found one. We have found a Savior who loved us. Lord God, when we were enemies, when we were unbelievers, when we were ignorant, when we were disobedient, 
nor God, we've fallen in one that loved us when we weren't lovely, when we were despairing of life itself, nor God, when we'd made a mess of our lives, that we found one called Jesus Christ who intervened. He didn't hate us, but he loved us with an everlasting love, and he lifted us up out of our sin. He just didn't tell us to live right, but oh God, he so changed us, so loved us, nor God, that we become obedient, love slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, tonight, I pray, O oh God, in a world of hate and anger and vengeance, nor God, fill your church with love, nor God, I pray for that supernatural love, nor God, to love enemies, O oh God, to bless those that despitefully use us and curse us, nor God, to do good to those that do evil unto us. Father, I do pray for your grace and your power, nor God, that we be radically different to anything seen in this world or this generation, that amidst prophetic events, amidst all that's happening with Israel and Gaza, nor God with the nations of the world, with Russia and China and America and Europe, Father, I pray that you'd raise up a real church that simply walks with you and loves you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, and this is Jesus speaking, Ye have heard that it hath been said, he was quoting from the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, the old covenant of Moses. He's quoting from it, Jesus, as he ministers in Israel 2,000 years ago. You have heard it said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor. In other words, someone close unto you, living next door to you, or someone who is like you, looks like you, speaks like you, lives like you. That's your neighbor. So Jesus said, you have heard it in the law, said, love thy neighbor. Love those that are like you. But listen to what he says. And hate thine enemy. That was in the law. It was righteous to hate an enemy. It was righteous to love your neighbor. That was the law. It was good. It was holy. It was upright. That's what marked the Jew out. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But then listen to where, what Jesus says next. But I say unto you, love your enemies. That's an extraordinary statement. Not to hate your enemies, love your enemies. What is an enemy? Someone who sets himself against you, speaks against you, hates you, acts against you, persecutes you, counts you as nothing. That's an enemy. What does the Bible say? Love your enemies. What did Jesus say? Love. Agape love. Not just an affection or a thought but to love deeply from the heart. That's what he says, your enemies. Bless them that curse you. So an enemy cursing you, what's your immediate reaction? To curse them or bless them? That's quite a statement because Jesus says you're to love your enemies. This is meant to be embodied in the church of Jesus Christ. Some of you I'd worry about that if you're attacked, you won't love your enemy. You will curse those that curse you. You will react in like manner. That's not the gospel. That's not Jesus. 
It says, do good to them that hate you. They hate you, but you're going to do good to them. Do you ever have a place in your life or along the way where you've shown good to those that hate you? It's very easy to do good to those that love you. Very, very easy. And you know what? We get proud doing good for those who are our neighbors or who love us or do good to us or will reward us. We get really proud of ourselves. Okay, let's test it. Go do good to those that hate you. Is there ever a realm in your life where you think that's possible? Has it been? Is it? Or will it be in the days ahead? Or is this utterly outside the realm of possibility? Is it a mere theory of the Bible? A mere concept of Jesus' teaching? Or is it a reality in your life? Is there something in your heart of a changed heart where you go, this isn't just you trying to do this because Jesus said it or religion says it. Remember last week, I said a sermon was preached in this city that quoted this scripture from Matthew 5 and then twisted it and said, don't let this scripture about loving your enemy stop you from hating the Jew. Since I'm telling you, this is the word of God to be taken literally, we must not excuse ourselves. You never have a right to hate or to become angry. You know what the Bible tells us? It actually shows us, it doesn't just say don't murder. It says you're not to be angry with your brother. And you know what the Bible shows? Anger is innate inside murder. It's murder of the heart. You know, there's people walk about with anger, vengeance, jealousy, bitterness, hatred in their heart, and they wonder why they're messed up. Do you know what they don't realize? The sin of anger against someone, Jesus said, it's exactly the same as murder. Just like lust in the mind is exactly like adultery. You say, I would never commit adultery, but you've lusted, sexually lusted. You think that's less? You know what God's interested in is a heart condition, not a mere action. It's not minimizing these things or making thoughts ridiculous. It's not doing that. What God is doing is showing you your heart attitude. God deals with the heart, not just outward action. We think, if I don't do it, then I'm okay. I'm not that bad. No, no, no. With the gospel, God deals with a heart. Because you know what's in your heart will come out. If anger is in your heart, you've got simmering, murder, You may say, I'd never murder someone. I would never do anything like that. I would never be violent. But it's in your heart. It's simmering. The devil is behind murder. The devil is behind anger, believe me. All these attitudes Jesus taught against, unforgiveness, bitterness, jealousy, and a thousand other things. You know, when you fall in love with Jesus and see that he loved you as a sinner, there is a cure for every attitude of the heart, every single attitude. His love conquers it. He loved you while you're a sinner. He loved you while you're far from him. He died for you while you are in your unbelief and sin. What manner of love is this? This is innate to the gospel. Christ died for sinners, for his enemies to reconcile them, to make them friends. There was nothing lovely about you. Don't disguise it. There there is nothing better in you than someone else. 
You were the worst of the worst. I bet the worst ones got in here, if, if anything. It wasn't the good ones got in here by the side door. And all, all, you know, it wasn't. There are bad folk in here. Christ never saved a righteous man. Christ never saved a good religious person. He only saves a sinner. That's why you can't even get saved until you realize you're a sinner. All the righteous saying, I'm good, I'm okay, I'm fine. There's no hope for them. You see, it's only the sick need a physician, need a doctor. You know what my message is here tonight? You'll, you'll say, that's a strange title, and then you're, you're preaching this. Oh, yeah, it's right in the message. It's right on track. See, what I'm preaching to you about is hard conditions. What's our message? Hitler, Islam, and anti-Semitism. Let me define anti-Semitism to you because I believe it's hatred of the heart. I believe it's something simmering deep in the heart. It's an attitude of the heart that's breaking out across our world. One man, an anti-Semitist with anger in his heart against a Jew, could stir an entire nation to murder. That's happened in world history. Listen to my definition of anti-Semitism. Because you know what? There's false conceptions of anti-Semitism. Many today, at the minute, in our world right now, are saying anti-Semitism is growing in our world because there's a state of Israel, because of what Israel has done since 1948, because they're bombing Gaza. I want to tell you that's utterly false. It's not even close. It's utterly false. Listen to what anti-Semitism means. Let me define it. It is a hatred. That's the first thing. It is a hatred of the heart. What's anti-Semitism? You may never act or speak. It's a hatred of the heart. If you have a deep-seated inner attitude to Jews generally, you have hatred in your heart. It is a prejudice, discrimination, or it can be an outward, verbal, audible attack against the Jew, as well as physically to slander, hurt them, damage them, hinder them, misrepresent them, destroy them, or to annihilate them. The Jew, that's what anti-Semitism is. Even if he is not religious, even if he is a pro-Palestinian Jew, even if he doesn't live in Israel, anti-Semitism hates Judaism, Israel, and hates individual Jews, whether they believe in God or whether they don't, whether they're moral or whether they're not, whether they're an atheist or a devout Jew. Anti-Semitism, we've seen it in our world and in history. I, I said last week about a spirit of anti-Semitism, a disposition of the heart. <clears throat> My message tonight, Hitler, Islam, and anti-Semitism. I want to give you three men and connect them. One of them's in the Bible. Two of them is in history. One of them in history, all of you know his name. All of you know something about him. I hope all of you dislike him. Okay, I said don't hate Certain men you could hate. Do you know it said God hated certain people? Not 
for no reason, but because of their actions, their attitude, and their works. I'm going to give you three men. One of them is Haman. The second one is Hitler. And the third one is a man you don't know. Most of you will not know him. Some of you maybe have heard his name in passing, but may not remember it. His name is Al-Husseini, a Muslim, who I believe matched Hitler. And just like Hitler was the cause of the Second World War, this man is the cause of anti-Semitism, or he's at the heart of anti-Israel since 1945. Let me show you these three men. But I'm preaching about love and hate. I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about being born again. Because when you look at this world and you see the heart of men, if all you have is out there, this is a tragic world. But I know there's more than that. Number one, I want you to see Haman. We dealt with him last week. And it's here in the book of Esther chapter 3. This is a man who suddenly, out of nowhere, got raised to power, political power, over all other national leaders. It was an extraordinary rise to power, almost unexplained, unexpected. And yet the leader of the nation, the king of Persia, of the entire Persian empire, suddenly lifted him up. You see, I believe there's a real devil behind wicked, evil men. I believe there's evil in the world. Some people out there don't believe there's a devil. There is a devil, I want to tell you. You can't even explain the evil of this world. You can't even explain some of the thoughts that go through your mind unless there's a real devil. I do believe in a real devil. We dealt with Haman last week, what sort of man he was. He was a man because he's offended by one Jew and he knows he's a Jew. Then he discovers the whole Jewish people and wants to annihilate them. He becomes wrathful, angry inside, and that leads him to murder. He says, I want to murder every single Jew. That is anti-Semitism. A man with an attitude, the most he can look at is one Jew, not bound to him, one Jew. And he gets offended and angry, and jealous, and bitter, and annoyed, and he can't sleep at night. There's something wrong with that. Do you realize that a man's heart, thoughts, feelings, emotions, offenses can so grip your heart, they'll destroy you. It'll become a passion, a fire burning. They'll destroy other people. That's why someone in the church, it says, if a root of bitterness grows up in their heart, they'll defile many other people. You know why? They don't keep quiet. You know someone who ever gets bitter, they'll have to speak to someone. They want to spread their venom, their anger, their discontent. You need to be very, very careful. Haman was such a man. But who was this Haman? I want to give you just one thing about Haman here tonight, which it says in verse 1 that Haman was an Agagite. In other words, that's his nationality, his DNA, his culture, his family background. 
If you want to know who Haman is, and the Bible says it very clearly, it says he is an Agagite. This man who suddenly arose, where did these ideas come? These words, these actions, this mission, this crusade to destroy all Jews in the entire empire. Where did it come from? Do you know what had a source in his family? In his family background, it just didn't originate with Mordecai not bowing to him once or twice. It was deeper than that. You know what? There was something innately in his family circle that when Haman didn't bow, it triggered fire, vengeance, murder. All of that was sitting bottled up. All it needed was one excuse, one action. You never have an excuse to get angry and murderous in your heart. Never. Do you know with this Haman, he was descended from an Agagite. What's an Agagite? What is that? What culture? What country? What nation? Well, the Bible tells us. In fact, the the Bible has a lot to say about this. Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 15 and 18. It talks about Agag. He's the first with that name. Agag king of the Amalekites. So the Amalekites were an entire people. The king over them was called Agag. Those of his family were called Agagites. So if you called yourself an Agagite, it means you were from the main leadership of the Amalekites. You prided yourself from coming from a king of the Amalekites. Do you know what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 15? Samuel, the prophet, commands King Saul of Israel to kill the Amalekites. And what does King Saul do? He saved alive Agag, the king, who Haman is going to descend from. Other Amalekites were killed, but not Agag. You know why? He's a leader, prestigious, important. He's different. There's power and influence here. So Saul, the king, who's a rebel against God, he's religious. He says, I don't need to do what God tells me to do. He only partially obeyed. And you know, Samuel come and said, you're you're rejected from ruling over this kingdom. When you go into Genesis 26, 13, you actually read about the father of the Malachites, the first man who was named, who would actually give birth to the entire people or tribe of the Amalekites. Do you know who he was? He was a descendant of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Remember, Esau hated his brother Jacob. Well, it was one of Esau's children had the father of the entire Amalekite people. You know, when you go to the Bible, you begin to see that Semites, remember anti-Semitism. Do you know, Jews aren't only Semites. There's many Semites out across the Middle East. Just think about this for a second. That you, that you actually have Abraham. He not only had Isaac by way of his wife, Sarai, who then had Jacob. There's other children that come from Abraham. Remember, Abraham couldn't wait for Isaac, couldn't wait for the promised child. His wife wasn't having a child. So what did he do? He took the maid, 
and had a child by her called Ishmael. That Ishmaelite was going to give rise to people in the Middle East, all because a man couldn't wait on God. You need to be very careful what you do in the will of God. You act, but not in obedience to God. There's consequences. You think, but I have to do this. No, you don't. You need to walk in the light of God's word. Look what Abraham done. I can't wait for God's supernatural work. So I'll just work it out with my mind. I'll just have, take the maid and I'll have a child. It'll be fine. This is God's way to do this. No, it's not. And you know what? In the Middle East, we've got problems because of attitudes like that. And in the church of this generation, we also read that after Sarah died, that Abraham married a second wife and he had several children to that second wife. All of these are somewhere in the Middle East, you know, but they're not a Jew. They're not of the seed of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but they're children of Abraham. Ishmael is a child of Abraham. And then what else do you have? Esau who's the brother of Jacob, he had 12 children, all descended from Abraham, but they're not Jews, they're not Israelites, but all these children came out of Abraham. You don't even need to think of uh, any other peoples. You've got all these children that come out of that line of Abraham, but they're according to flesh, not the spirit, and there's consequences. They didn't follow the Bible or the God of the Bible or holiness. It's just like Esau taking two wives to marriage, two foreign wives, two religious wives of another religion. There is consequence from all of that. So we actually see that this people, the Amalekites and Agog the king, actually came out of all of this line of Esau, That's where it came from. After the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 17, we read about the reason why God was opposed to this people. Listen very carefully. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out a remembrance of a Malachite from under heaven. Why would God say about a particular people, He was going to wipe them out and judge them. Why would God judge? Some people say, I don't believe a God of love would do that. Do you know a God of love is going to cast people into hell? There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. He loves sinners. None of you deserve this. He loves you. God created hell for Satan and his angels, not for men. He doesn't want you to go there. But do you know what? To reject God, to reject his love. He says, I want to save you. I want you to come to me. I want you to have an eternity with me. And we go, no, 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 I'll work it out. Do you know God loves you and to reject that and spurn it? What a tragic thing to think we can do it ourselves. But here you have a people, why would God judge them? For he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalekite from generation unto generation. There was something in this people, very dangerous, and God himself said it. These Amalekites are very dangerous. Why are they? Listen to what they've done. It says in Deuteronomy 25, 18, and this talking about the Amalekites. It's saying why God had a problem with them. 
they met you by the way when you're making this journey to the promised land. And they smote the hindermost part of thee right at the very back. Didn't attack you at the front or your soldiers. They went right to the back. Even all them that were feeble behind thee. That's who the Amalekites attacked. I want to tell you, an army that marches against an army is different than terrorists who kill civilians. There's an entire different way of thinking. I want to tell you, it can be hard to fight another soldier on the battlefield. But to sneak in and to murder civilians in cold blood, there's something wrong with that mind. Oh, they can get converted, and many terrorists have amazing testimonies. I've heard testimonies in recent weeks of men who murdered and have been born again, forgiven, and have wept as they shared. Their lives are so messed up, so driven by murder. But I want to tell you, someone that will do that, there's something wrong with their thinking. Really bad. And so God says here, and when thou wentst the faint and the weary, and he feared not God, Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord hath given thee for a habitation to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget. Let me just deposit this for a minute. The Bible teaches when you deal with a Haman, who wants to annihilate the Jew, an entire people, wants to destroy them. He's filled with anger and he's risen up to power, great power, ultimate power in an empire. And he's an angry man. Do you see that God gives the history of that man and says it's no accident why he's like that? There's ideas, there's thought. When I was raised as a child, I wasn't taught hatred, anger and venom against any people, none. And I know we're not responsible for the environment we grew up in. But I'm telling you, that can impact you, either for good or bad. You better be careful what you give to your children. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when God says to Saul, don't let Agag live, and he let him live, and out of him come a child that hated the Jew, in Persia, in another country. And when he got the opportunity, he says, I will kill every single Jew. Genealogy matters. DNA matters. History matters in the sight of God. That's the first man I'm just giving you, Haman. And we heard the story last week, Haman. Anger can so get in your heart. Prejudice. Ideologies from your family. Remember Agag and the Amalekites were the perpetual enemies of Israel. They attacked them. They're weak ones. They're innocent ones. The ones at the back. They were perpetually attacking them. They tried to annihilate them. This is the history. God says, you better not forget that. Because as soon as you turn your back on that and say, sure, it's okay, you're in trouble. The second man I want to deal with here is Hitler. All of you know something about Hitler. I hope you do, because history is important. 
If you're ignorant about history, you can't even believe that someone could that be that evil. Who was Hitler? Do you know that in Austria, in his youth, as a young boy, he carried bags at the train station? He was just another boy growing up in Austria, right next to Germany. Growing up with ideas around him. Then he becomes a painter in Austria. A very bad painter, unsuccessful. But as a young man, innocent, no power, no influence, no money, people start spreading ideas against the Jew to him. Anti-Semitism, a hatred of the Jew. It was deposited in his heart. Who could have imagined that Hitler would be raised up to such power? Some people believe he had to have got demon-possessed. But here he is before the First World War, just another person. When the Second World War broke out, he was only a lance corporal in the army, got injured, ended up in hospital, and come out of the army after being injured. That's all he was. And yet this man was raised up by the hand of Satan to be the terror of Europe. You know what? He instigated the death of six million, million Jews. Anti-Semitism was his lifeblood. Hatred, bitterness, anger against another people. He used poison gas and mass shootings. 2.7 million Jews were killed in concentration camps. Extraordinary. One million in Auschwitz, just one military Nazi camp under Hitler's power. One million people died in a death camp. All Jews. Extraordinary. This is anger. It began just as a thought, an attitude, an ideology, reading little books, tracts. People read the internet today and watch media today. You better be very careful what gets in your heart. You better guard your heart. Guarding your heart just doesn't mean about sinning around you. Every idea, every thought, every teaching. Not only was there 2.7 killed in these death camps, there was also 2 million Jews killed by the Nazis, just shooting them dead, mass shootings, lining them up, 2 million. Very few people mention that. There was... About 3.3 million Soviets, mostly soldiers, killed by the Nazis. It doesn't even come near the killing of Jews. The Jews weren't killed on a battlefield. They were taken innocently. Men, women, children, herded, lied to. Take a shower. Really, you're going to your death. And then Hitler tried to destroy all the evidence. You know, in the Second World War, they say about 60 million people died. 25 million died in death camps, not just the Jew. Six million were Jews, but another 19 million died in death camps. What sort of thing got in this man's heart? See, you can't rectify that. You can't change that. This man is vile. His name was Adolf Hitler, Austrian. Gained German citizenship, and he arose suddenly to power. From 1920, he modeled himself politically upon Mussolini. He also received large financial help from Mussolini and firearms 
when needed, without which his party could never have risen to power. Do you know who Hitler was? He was an anti-Semite. He was dominated by anti-Semitism. We must never forget this. This was his lifeblood, one of the most dominating ideas, teachings, messages, reasons for everything he done was his hatred of the Jew. Not Britain, not the English, not the French. He fought them, killed them, but it was the Jew he hated. He had a determination to exterminate the Jew and desired to do that more than win the war. You know, when it got near the end of the war and it looked like he could begin losing, he took all of his resources and moved them to annihilate more Jews. He had to kill the Jews. He was even willing to lose the war in order to kill Jews. There's something terribly wrong with this. And so from 1920, Hitler and the Nazi party rose up constantly. They spewed out hatred and anger against the Jew. He hated the Jew. He introduced the medical system, eugenics, science, to think up ways to kill the Jews. You know, in the 1930s, he took over the whole medical system of Germany, the doctors, the nurses, and he employed them on experimenting on Jews, their children, their wives, men, women, children. The, in, in fact, Hitler could not have done what he'd done without the medical system in Germany. He brought it on board as a tool of Nazism against the Jew. You see, all of this comes out of the heart. We must never forget how wicked a man's heart can be. I know most aren't like that. Anger is dangerous. Hatred is dangerous. Attitudes of the heart are dangerous. And so Hitler was dominated by this. That's not natural. The 20th century was marked by this, a hatred of the Jew. Don't tell me that's normal. Just like with him and I believe the devil's behind this, there's no way Hitler could have conceived this with natural logical thinking. What Jew ever done anything to him? Do you know all the experts on Hitler, they write book after book trying to discover why did he hate the Jew? And they say it was for this reason and this reason and this reason. I won't list them all to you. I believe they've all missed it. It is a power far greater behind that of evil that hates the Jew because the Bible speaks about the Jew. I believe that is what was there. And so we heard last week about 1938. It was the anniversary last Thursday of Kristallnacht. That, that's when Jews were attacked, their shop windows broken, a thousand synagogues burnt down. Glass broke across the nation as they attacked the Jew. But you know, before that, they took away their citizenship. They, they threw their children out of the schools. Step by step from 1932-3, Hitler gained power and constantly brought in laws, legislation against the Jew. There's something behind this of such evil you can't imagine. And you know what? It's going to get worse in the days ahead. Our Bible predicts something that makes Hitler look like a picnic, and I don't minimize anything. Our Bible is very clear what's going to happen in the days ahead. You may say, why call it Hitler, Islam, and anti-Semitism? You may say, what does Hitler, the Holocaust, 
Six million Jews die in Nazism that was defeated in 1945. What does that have to do with Islam and with Gaza and with what's happening today? Everything. You can't even understand what's happened on your news today unless you understand what I'm just about to say. I'm going to tell you something remarkable. Haman, Hitler, and the third man, and this is what I want you to hear tonight. You don't hear anything else. Hear this. No, let me rephrase that. You're going to hear and hear the bit I said about needing Christ and the love of Christ. But on a secular front, hear this. I'm going to tell you here for a moment, because you cannot, and you're going to see when I connect these dots, why our whole world, why is it claimed that one million people marched in London last weekend, pro-Palestinian, or should I say pro-Hamas? Why is it all across America and universities and colleges, young people, teenagers are rising up, chanting Hamas chants? Why is there a rise of anti-Semitism right now in the past several weeks greater than I've seen in my entire lifetime and hasn't been seen maybe since 1945 or so we think? This man's going to explain everything because see Al-Husseini that I'm going to tell you about. He was involved in the First World War and massacres of Jews the Second World War Holocaust, and then he continued moving into Soviet communism to promote attacks on Israel. This man's unique. In fact, you can't understand Hamas unless you understand this man. You can't understand the PLO, the West Bank, or anti-Semitism in this hour without coming across him. Let me give you the facts about him in case you should doubt this. If you think Haman was evil and Hitler was evil, this man takes step by step with them in more ways than you can imagine. Al-Husseini was a Muslim from Jerusalem in what was called Palestine, but all Jews were called Palestinians back then at the time he was born. From he was born into one of the ruling families in Jerusalem under the Turkish Muslim Ottoman Empire. They ruled over the entire Middle East, over Jerusalem. And his family was one of the key families. Many of them were called muftis, grand muftis. In other words, Muslim leaders within Jerusalem and within the area. So he came out of this family they as a family claim to descend directly from Muhammad, the prophet who initiated Islam. And he made early contacts with anti-Semitism. He went to a Catholic school in the city of Jerusalem to learn the French language. He was a very intelligent young boy. While he was in that French school, he come in contact in that Catholic school with priests and with teachers who began to share with them theories about Jews, the protocols of Zion, and about conspiracies about the Jews. It was a Catholic that shared 
with this young boy as he learned the French language. And so these views started to come to him very young and from his own home. When the First World War broke out, he joined the Turkish army to fight for Turkey against the Allied forces and got injured during that time. Then at the end of the First World War, he moved his allegiance to the British in order to be on the winning side. In 1920, he started the first of his Arab rats. He would do another one in 1929 and 36, and this would become a dominant thing with him, hatred of the Jew. This is one of the most important Muslims you're ever going to hear about in your entire life, outside of Muhammad himself. A very important. In May 1921, the British made him the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. They thought he was a moderate. They thought they could trust him. They thought he was pro-British, that he would benefit their cause against other powers in the region. So they raised him to power. Then he became the chairman of the Palestinian Muslim Council. He went from power to power, politically, religiously, in his influence. He traveled the Middle East. He knew everybody that was anybody to know. And he'd become known as the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. It was very prestigious, but the British had actually given him this position. The British promised the Arabs that they would have a state. In the Balfour Declaration, the Jews also were promised a state. And they tried to organize this, say, there would be a large Palestinian state, Muslim state, and within that would be a Jewish free state. It was a two-state declaration. But you know, Husseini did not want any room for the Jew. It wasn't live and let live. He, at an early stage, hated the Jew. He wanted annihilation of the Jew. He didn't want to live at peace with the Jew. He was like Hitler, and he didn't know Hitler at this stage. He was an anti-Semite with a real anger and bitterness against the Jew. In 1928, he created the Supreme Muslim Council and began to spread rumors in the Arab world about a Zionist plot to destroy the Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem, including the mosque, the Dome of the Rock there. He was the biggest promoter prior to the Second World War. He spread constantly, the Jew is going to destroy everything Muslim, take over Jerusalem, and then take over every Arab Muslim country in the Middle East. He was a conspiracy theorist. He picked up fables about the protocols of Zion. He believed them, and it drove him crazy and angry against the Jew. Again, it wasn't logical how he lived and thought. Other Arabs around him weren't thinking like this. They weren't reading these things. They weren't looking for the annihilation of the Jew. Most Muslims and most Arabs in the Middle East prior to the Second World War were quite happy to live at peace. They were in fact very pro-British at the time. But there was a man in the midst beginning to rise to power who had a hatred. In 1931, he attended the World Islamic Council. He called it together in Jerusalem. And at that council, he boycotted trade with every single Jew in Palestine and the Middle East. 
1933. And this is where I'm going to connect the dots here. Listen very carefully. I want you to understand that if you didn't have a Hitler and Nazism, you would not have the modern problem in the Middle East. You wouldn't have a Hamas if there wasn't Nazism. Let me prove it here. In 1933, German Nazi leaders sent from Hitler went to Jerusalem in the Middle East to meet with Al-Husseini. They, they began to talk through the plan of Muslims and Nazis working together in the Middle East against the British and against the Jew. In 1933, Hitler suggested to him that they should not have a jihad against the Jews in the Middle East yet because he's going to do it in Europe. After he annihilates the Jew in Europe, then you can annihilate all the Jews in Jerusalem and throughout the Middle East and we'll help you. You help us now, we'll help you then. There began to be a plan forged from 1933 between Muslims in the Middle East and Nazism in Berlin to begin working together. They would help us in Germany. We will help them in their Muslim nations. And you know what the target is? The Jew. We are going to work together across our nations against the Jew. This is history. And you know what? What I'm just telling you now is history that most do not know. But you can't understand today's world unless you have this. This Al-Husseini is a radical Muslim. And when you see it in today's world, he is the father of it. Muslims were mostly moderate in that day. But here come a radic radical Muslim with vengeance and hatred. Uh, the British actually put out a call or a warrant for his arrest. And so in 1937, before the war, he fled Jerusalem because Britain was in power there. And he fled to Iraq in 1939. Guess what he'd done there? He joined Muslim soldiers, created a coup to rise up and to take the nation of Iraq. It was to be a pro-Nazi Iraq. And he was working with Nazism to create this coup to make it radical anti-British and anti-Jew, anti but it was defeated. The attempt failed, and he had to flee Iraq. Guess where he went to? He went to Berlin at that point after this failed coup. He met up with Hitler for the very first time in a remarkable meeting. In 1941, he had a 90-minute meeting with Hitler, and they solidified their plans together. How? This grand mufti of Jerusalem, this Muslim, Hal Husseini, it was going to stay in Berlin and promote the annihilation of the Jew. He was going to be the number one worker alongside Hitler, outside of his top command, his most wicked generals. This man is the most important man in the Holocaust. You never hear his name. He was one of the most radical of Muslims in that hour. And so as they sat and they talked, they made a genocidal pact to annihilate the Jew, one in the Middle East. He would finish that task. And one in Europe, he intended to finish his task. 
he spent four years in Germany and Italy, three years in Germany, one year in Italy, one year working for Mussolini and three years working for Hitler, but all in the same task, the annihilation of the Jew. But listen, just before this, he published a booklet in 1937, before he came to Berlin. It was called Islam and Judaism. And it was the founding document of modern Is Islamic anti-Semitism. You see, Hitler said they're a race. It's DNA. You can't convert to be anything else. If you're a Jew, you're always a Jew. You're impure. It's not to do with religion. It's scientific. It's evolutionary. It's Darwinism. Darwin really affected Hitler and all of his ideology. But you know the difference with Al-Husseini? He was going to make anti-Semitism purely Jewish. And he wanted to spread in the Middle East that if you're a Muslim, you are against the Jew. You hate the Jew. To be a Muslim is to be a Jew hater. He didn't want that separated. He wanted to join it, and he was very successful at it. This is the one man that created the anger and the bitterness in the Muslim world of the Middle East in this hour. And so this book he put out, he used religious reasons, the sole reason for opposition to the Jew. He actually went back to the seventh century, to Muhammad, and Muhammad's war against the Jews in the seventh century, and he brought it right back into the 20th century. There was no war from Muslims against the Jews. Oh yes, there was always some trouble, but there was peace. Jews were living peacefully, generally in the Middle East, all in Muslim countries. After the influence of this, they would get driven out of every single Muslim Arab nation as a result of this. It was major. They had lived in Arab Muslim nations for 3,000 years. But within one generation, some countries you wouldn't find one Jew in, all because of this man, all because of this book. And so he tied Muhammad's fight against the Jew to a 20th century fight that must arise and attack the Jew. Remember, this was written 11 years before there's a state of Israel. Don't let anyone tell you that anti Muslim anti-Semitism is actually there because of Israel being a state and attacking the Palestinians and stealing their land. Oh, no, it's not. It's the other way round. You've got problems because of a man like this who was working with Hitler and with Nazism. It's utterly remarkable. Let me tell you about the propaganda because this is the most important point I'm going to say of this. Since 1939, or beginning in 1939, a shortwave radio was set up outside of Berlin. It was the most powerful radio that had ever been built in the world. The greatest, the best technology, the clearest recording, broadcast. Do you know where it was focused? The Arab world. The entire Middle East and North Africa, this radio was aimed at that whole region. They actually hired professionals, experts from the Middle East to preach in the Arabic tongue, who are going to use this radio aimed at Muslims all across the Middle East. Whose plan was this? This was Hitler's. And you know what? He brought Husseini in on this 
to be one of the key persons to use this. As this propaganda plan against the Middle East began, there were about 90,000 radios in the Middle East. Do you know, I've read accounts in some of these countries and towns, people said, a radio, what's that? You, you know what I'm like with technology, you mentioned the lace go, what's that? They didn't know what a radio was, never heard about it. Do you know what Mussolini done? He brought radios in free all across the Middle East. 90,000 radios were there. They had set them up in cafes or in marketplaces that the audience was very large. They would start their programs by reading from the Quran. Then after reading entire chapters of the Quran, they immediately infused it with conspiracy theories that we dealt with last week against the Jews. The Jews are taken over the world. The Jews are pigs. The Jews must be annihilated. They had this radio station outside of Berlin manned by German scholars, experts, who had strong arguments. All of this influence and all the money of Hitler was behind it. This was very important. It actually grew to the point of having one million listeners at least every week. Husseini also broadcast from Rome and Italy for Mussolini, the very same things. And Goebbels, who is Hitler's propaganda expert, worked over this Muslim, trained the Muslim men. How do you speak? How do you breathe out hatred? Like he was out across Europe against the Jew, against the British, against the French, against the Dutch. Here were men only set against the Jew. Think about it. This was all across the Middle East beginning in 1939. You want to know why we've got a problem now? Rising up out of Arabic cultures. At this stage, there was an 80% illiteracy condition right across the Arabic world of the Middle East. So listening, hearing things was very important. They were mostly casual before the war, but all through the war, for the next six years, this radio pumps into every country, Muslim, Arab in the Middle East, every single day, three times a day, every nation, every major town and city, every single day for six years with Arabic speakers preaching against the Jew. You want to know why there's a problem in the Middle East? It's part of Nazi Hitlerism. It was him creating it, guarding it. Oh, something was unleashed that you can't even imagine. This Al Husseini lived on in Germany for three years. They paid his salary for those three years. And in fact, they say that he was, he was paid more than a German field marshal. And a German field marshal is as high as you get militarily. He was paid more than them. Do you know what he'd done when he was in Berlin? I've, I've looked at the photographs. He went round all the Holocaust concentration camps. Hess, all the massacres of Hitler, all the murders of the concentration camps. He went in there, escorted. He would go around looking. He would inspect the German soldiers and rebuke them, saying, you're not doing a good enough job killing the Jews. You've got to do better. This was a vile, evil man. He was bloodthirsty. He enjoyed the concentration camp. He also was the key man who moved out into Bosnia and Serbia 
and he raised up tens of thousands of Muslims to serve Nazism in the SS. This just keeps growing when you begin to investigate it. In December 1942, they created Berlin's Islamic Central Institute, or Propaganda Hub. And at his inaugural speech, he says, Nazism and Islam have a common enemy. It's the Jew. Do you know in Mein Kampf, the book that Hitler wrote, My Struggle, his classic book of hatred against the Jew, all his views were there in the 20s. No one believed him. You better not underestimate anger, jealousy, bitterness, murder, hatred. It's wicked. Don't call it anything else. It's wrong. You don't have the right to hate Muslim or homosexual or anyone else. I don't compromise with sin, but I don't hate anyone. I love sinners. Jesus died for sinners. I believe they can be born again, saved by God's grace. In 1944, near the end of the war, the Allies issued a warrant for Al-Husseini's arrest again. But he escaped in 1945 before Nuremberg. Remember the Nuremberg trials? There in Germany, all the worst Holocaust generals had to stand trial unless they'd committed suicide or fled to Argentina or went through the rat lines. You know what the rat lines are? Set up by the Catholic Church, by Catholic priests through monasteries. Who helped all the top generals escape more than any other institution? The Catholic Church. Cardinals. It's notorious what they done. I wonder why. Why would they do that for men like that? In 1945, Al-Husseini escaped and went to um, Egypt. He escaped all these trials. The Allied forces wanted him and then said, what are we going to do with him if we pick him up? So he escaped. Do you know what's going to happen three years later at the end of the war? Israel's going to be birthed as a nation in one day. And the first war takes place of all these Muslim nations. Listen to me. I, I know I'm saying this, but I want you to listen. I want you to understand something. Why do you think when Israel was birthed, they escaped the Holocaust? They escaped from Europe. They had no homeland. They weren't an army. They weren't attacking anyone. They're refugees. They are those that have survived Hitler's Nazism. They're rescued out of death camps. And they arrived in dribs and drabs. Why do you think on the first day after being created as a nation, all these Muslim radicals attacked Israel? Why do you think that is? Three, hour, three years after the end of the war, there is a connection. Six years of propaganda, anti-Judaism, hatred, anger, pure Nazi propaganda pumped out every single day into these nations. Why do you think they rose up in one day against the new state of Israel on its first day and says, we'll annihilate you? What was it, an army of 40 million? There's hardly a population of a million there of Jews. Why would they do that? But you know this Al-Husseini, he escaped. 
but he's still there. Do you know who he trained after the war? Let me give you some facts just so you know. Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, who was the accomplice of Hitler, to say the most next wicked man to Hitler. Do you know what he said? He escaped, got to Argentina. Remember years later, the Jews picked him up, flew him back to Israel, kidnapped him. They thought he was gone. Listen to what Eichmann said at the end of the, first, the Second World War. Because Nazism had failed. Listen to what he says carefully. I have not managed to complete the annihilation of the Jew, but I hope the Muslims will. That's his statement at the end of the Second World War. Al-Husseini stirred up an Arab revolt in the Middle East to fight the Jews. Do you know what Hitler started doing in the Middle East with the help of Al-Husseini? During the war, at the end of the war, before Israel become a state, they took Mein Kampf, Hitler's book, translated into Arabic and began publishing it all across the Middle East. You know, the other day on a news item, it came up, a Jewish soldier, while searching a dead Hamas terrorist, discovered in his pocket Hitler's Mein Kampf. That was just the other day. It was all marked up. Notes written from Hitler's Mein Kampf is hatred of, of Jews. That's still happening. Don't tell me this isn't connected. It's absolutely connected. Or what about the book I told you about that came out of Russia, The Persecution of Jews, The Elders of Zion, Zion of the Protocols of Zion. They also began translating that into the Arabic language, Hitler and Al-Husseini, and put it out all across the Middle East. Do you know present-day uh, present Islam generally believes the protocols of Zion? It's put on their, in the newspapers, it's put on their televisions. The book is popularly sold across, across the country. Mein Kampf, Nazism, is, they're proud of it in the Muslim world. They count Hitler a hero in today's Muslim world. Back in the Second World War, Al-Husseini used Nazi funding to partially fund and create the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt that would give rise to Hamas, give rise to all these different Muslim terrorist groups. Anti-Semitism was never discredited in 1948 in the Middle East, never in the Muslim world. It was in Europe. I grew up knowing Hitler's a vile man. Nazism, something evil got a hold of it, but that never took place in the Middle East. They never come to understand that at all. Here's another one. After the end of the Second World War, who do you think Al-Husseini personally mentored in the 50s and 60s in Egypt, trained him up, become his personal discipleship? A man called Ararat, who become the leader of the PLO, who lived in the West Bank and opposed Israel dogmatically, calling for their utter destruction. See, the story never changes. See what happened to Hamas? You will not know why God has war with the Amalekites and Agag. There's a reason. Something is coming through that family. Nazism is connected to Hamas. 
You can't understand Hamas without understanding Nazism. You can't understand today's Muslim world unless you understand Germany of the Second World War. After 1945, it was mostly in Arab countries that Nazism was tolerated and commended. Many Nazi war criminals escaped. I think it was three, 4,000 went to Egypt, settled down, new name, new job. Medical doctors, all of the rest, they settled down there. They were protected, and then they entered into a Muslim war. You know, when Arafat took over the PLO, Al-Husseini sent him ex-Nazi soldiers to train the PLO. That's who helped them. I could go on and on and on here. I'm only touching on this. I've only begun on this, really. But I'm going to close now. But I want you to understand what's happened in the Middle East. See, 1948, the Muslim war against the initial state of Israel was an aftershock. Do you know what an aftershock is? A earthquake hits devastatingly. Then there's a little delay, just a little delay, but it's the same earthquake. An aftershock, it's the same earthquake, but it's the aftershock hitting. That was 1948. The Arab-Israeli wars are still part of the Second World War. They were reached by propaganda. The devil was behind it. It was instigated. So today you have 1.7 billion Muslims across the world opposed to 14 million Jews who only have one bit of land to settle in in all of the world. And now anti-Semitism is bigger in the Western world than in all of history. One million people marching in London against the Jew. Why isn't anyone speaking about this or looking at this? Let me just finish here with four key points that I want you to hear which are very important, very, very important as we close this. Do you know what I believe? I believe in a God of love. Do you hear me? We are in a world in chaos. My Bible gives prophecies of what's just to ha about to happen in the years ahead with the Jewish rebirth nation. It predicted it. 2,700 years ago, God said Israel would be scattered across all the nations and then it would be regathered to its same land, same mountains, same villages, same valleys, same everything. And it would be miraculous and it would happen in one day. They were scattered beginning in AD 70 and they didn't get recreated again until 1948, almost 2,000 years. Do you know what I believe? I believe in a God of love. God so loved you that he gave his only son. See, in Islam, there's no love, no forgiveness, no mercy, no hope of eternal salvation. You know what a Muslim does? He'll carry out martyrdoms or suicide bombings, hoping that he'll be accepted by Allah. But no one in Islam knows. I'm going to tell you, my Bible says God is a God of love. 
He loves you. He died for you when you didn't deserve it and you weren't right and you're not, you're not right in your heart. He says, I love you. And you know how you know he loved you? He sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to die on a cross just for you. Just for you. That's the power of this gospel. That's why I've got friends who are saved out of radical communism, radical Islam, atheism, evolutionism, Catholicism, Hinduism, everything. Over my lifetime, I've met them in every stage of life. Do you know what conquered those lives? It wasn't religion. It was the love of God. It's a powerful force in this world. It's a dynamic thing. <clears throat> Number two, Bible prophecy is true. This book talks about, by, by, that's why God says, I want you to know I'm real and this Bible is real. So I've filled it with Bible prophecies, predictions about kings, nations, events, accurate prophecies. All of them come to pass. I've got my mark in this. You know, the guys who pull out, try to pull out and say there's mistakes in the Bible, they never deal with that because it's impossible. They argue over little word statements of what it's meant in the text. They can't even begin to deal with Bible prophecy because it's filled with it. There's no other religious book like that. Do you know the third thing I want to tell you as we close? I'm glad there's a judgment day. Hitler didn't escape by committing suicide in a bunker in Berlin or down of old age in Argentina. Whichever way you want to take it. Do you know what? He didn't escape. If I was like the atheists out there, a non-believer out there, say, I don't believe in hell, I don't believe in judgment, I don't believe in an afterlife, then your world's very unfair. Hitler escaped, child abusers escaped, murderers escaped, wicked men escaped. You say, I'll tell them, their world is vile. My world isn't. You know what? I know there's a judgment day. There's a heaven. There's a hell. You don't want to die without being ready to make heaven. You do not want to die. So I know there's a judgment day. You'll say, but you said it's a good thing. It is. I don't need to take vengeance on anyone. Vengeance is the Lord's. But don't think God doesn't take vengeance. He does. That's why he says don't take vengeance. What do you think God's not going to put things right? He is. Hitler will never escape the judgment of God. And you know what? Worse is the judgment for such a vile man. All judgment isn't the same. It's not. Fourth and lastly, you can be born again. See, when you see Haman and you see Hitler, and you see radical Islam, and Al-Husseini. Al-Husseini dies without being held accountable. He didn't stand at Nuremberg. Oh, yes, he will. He will. You look at all of that. I want to tell you, I'm born again. I'm born again. I have the love of God. I don't care who I meet. I love them. I can turn the other cheek. I can actually speak well of those who curse me. They can curse me. Not to high heaven, to lowest hell. I'll bless you. It's not always easy. I can love those that hate me. 
when they come and slap one cheek, you turn the other. Done that recently? It's not easy. But do you know what? To be born again, you get a new nature. And you begin acting in a way that you never would have outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. My message. Oh, did you think it was Hitler, Islam, and anti-Semitism? No, it's you must be born again. Because this world, physically, the descendants of all this, they are heading for a colossal Armageddon, Third World War, atrocity. There's going to come the greatest attack and annihilation of the Jew ever in world history. All of this is nothing in compared to what's about to happen in the years ahead. But there is going to be a people, Christians, who are going to preach the gospel to the Muslims, to the Arabs, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the Irish, to the English. Do you know what? There's going to be a real church in this world who says, God loves you. Christ died for you. And I'm going to tell you of the gospel. I'm praying for you. You can be born again and experience a life-changing encounter with Christ. You can know this God changes everything, never to be the same. Please stand with me. Let's pray here together. Can we pray for our world tonight? In an hour where evil and wicked and vengeance and anger is being released, saints of God, in trying to stand for righteousness, be careful that you don't just become a Jew and forget that you're a born-again Christian, that you're to bless those that curse you, that you're to love those that hate you, that you're to pray for your enemies, that you ought to be broken over those even that are evil. There should be no delight in the death of the wicked, but oh, we should desire the salvation, the mercy, the grace and the goodness of God. Father, tonight I pray, O oh God, in this meeting, Lord God, for your love and your mercy and your grace. Father, you are a God that exposes wickedness. You will judge sin. Lord God, not one man, not one evil person is going to get away in the days ahead. Every single thing is going to be held accountable to you. And my God, that makes us able to walk in this world without getting bitter or angry or jealous or vengeful. Lord God, we know there's a God of love who loves us, oh God. We realize there is suffering in this world that we don't understand. There are things that happen to us, that break us, that hurt us. But there's a God who sent his son to die. There's one who loves us. There's one that when we close our eyes in death, that we can open our eyes and look upon his face and enjoy him forever and revel in his presence and glory in his midst. My God, I long for that day when I see you, when I meet you, when I embrace you when I glorify my Lord and my Savior face to face. You're a mighty Savior. And Lord God, I know that you're not finished. There's many Muslims that you're going to reach in this generation. As Islam falls, as wars take place, that you will reach many with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That Israel, as Israel has its back against the wall and gets invaded by these armies in Ezekiel, that you're again going to turn them to the bleeding lamb. You're going to reveal the Son of God. Hallelujah. And Father, we're looking for a revival in this hour. Just one last time, one last harvest that are saved out of the nations. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.